Uh, this is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus. Welcome. Uh, went deep into the archives again today to find something to share, a talk to share with you. It's not a talk, it's actually a panel. And it's from 1974, from when Naropa, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, university opened up. And Ramdas was a featured teacher there. And um, in fact, I must mention to you, he was teaching on the yogas of the Bhagavad Gita's. And we have a an edited version of the complete talks uh, called Love, Service, Devotion, and the Ultimate Surrender. It's a 10-CD set. Go to ramdas.org to the shop and just uh, put a search in for Love, Service, Devotion. Uh, it, this is, uh, and not just me hyping, there's a lot of people who've listened to this who uh, would tell you this is some of the best material of Ramdas over all these decades. I mean, it's all great, but this one's particular because of the subject matter from the Gita. So I can't more highly recommend it to, to everybody, from beginners to uh, people who've uh, known and heard Ramdas uh, for a long time. So, uh, and that's going to help the old foundation out, everybody. So help support what we're doing at ramdas.org and uh, the retreats, everything else that we're doing. Um, so, as I said, this is a panel with Ramdas and Trumpa Rinpoche and two other of his uh, Naropa people, a man named John Baker and a man named Jim Green, and hosted by Duncan Campbell. And uh, it's this is superb because it is absolutely unique in the way in which Ramdas and Trumpa relate with each other. And... Uh, and a, another huge, huge thing for me, I mean, I had not, I don't think I ever actually watched, I knew that we had it, but I never watched it. And this, I just came upon it randomly today. And you get the the way in which Trungpa Rinpoche, it, it was his his thinking, his expression is so original it's so non-rational in a way. I mean, you, you, everything that comes out of his mouth, you gotta, like, do a double take, and like, you, you could spend like, you know, ten, fifteen minutes on each thing. It's so radically unusual. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but you, you really, uh, when you, when you hear this, I think you'll get it. Um, by the way, this was a video, and we are putting the video up. So when you go to this audio. Uh, version, you know, either you're subscribing on iTunes or you're going through BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Ramdas, Be Here and Now, uh, it will have a link. And I urge you, do watch at least some of this thing. Just There's so much, uh, you know, emotional display through uh, gestures and facial expressions and so on. It's really precious. It really is. Uh, what so what they're talking about is the notion of the ego, and uh, talking about it in terms of both Western psychology or, and psychiatric. Because one of these guys was a, a, a practicing psychiatrist, and also through Eastern philosophy and and uh, psychology, and uh, so there is some really really valuable information here aside from the the incredible charm of of this interplay uh just a couple of things i'll i'll just point out um 
that so uh, Trungpa is talking about uh, the development of the ego. So the, the the baby is there. It comes from the one. He doesn't say that, but it comes from non-existence. So it understands the possibility of non-existence, meaning non-ego. And this is all my conjecture, by the way. You all may get something else, you know, another message. But here's what he says. So it cries. The baby cries because suddenly it's out of that incredible spaciousness, right, as it has come through the birth canal and and now is uh, embodied. And so what does it first do? It sucks the mother's breast. Why? So it can have some connection just some connection so it has a relative connection to know it does exist right because it's in a body which is an expression of a kind of panic Rinpoche says which society is built on from that point of view pretty amazing thing when you start to really think about the reality of that I won't say any more about that and I'm sure everybody's going to come up with a, a little bit of a, a different uh, thought pattern around what he says. Um, oh, he also said at one point that the theory of relativity, that concept, once that came into the West, there was more possibility of, of the Buddha mind emerging, could emerge. Interesting. Um, what else? Um, there is another version of survival other than trying to survive with the basic necessity of the ego. And he said, I would call that enlightenment. That's another version of survival. <laughs> I mean, this radical kind of thought thing, p- thinking, thought pattern. Um... And then Ramdas at some point says, a lot of the boundaries are put up by the intellect without recognizing intuitive possibilities in the universe. And intellect is very finite in its possible abilities to conceive. Uh, And the other note that I made to myself about this is there is a just marvelous exchange between Ramdas and Trungpa. And it has to do with Ramdas saying when he was a therapist, you know, before he was Ramdas, when he was a therapist, at some point he started to realize that he was so caught in the role that he there was no way that he could be of any use to his uh, students or clients or whatever. And so that, you know, that and the whole psychedelic thing, that propelled him to get out to find, he didn't say this exactly, but find a, a, a roadmap of consciousness. But he just said, so I got out to become a human being that could be of some help to somebody. So Trungpa took issue with that. And he said, well, you left them hanging? And so they went into a whole thing about that. And Ramdas said, well, you know, you went into a cave, right? And uh, just the nature of... It really, I guess the root of it is around the nature of, of service and what you're doing. And, and Ramdas talked about, so there are times when you need to retreat so that you can in, 
uh, engender more of your true self so that you can be of more use to people. And so they went into a whole dialogue on that that was really fascinating. Um, I'm just going to leave this to you guys to to listen. As you can tell, I'm very enthusiastic about this. When I come up, come upon something like this and get so much out of it, uh, this is just the kind of thing I love to share. And you know how much I love Trungpa, even though I know there are, there are people out there who judge him for this, that, and the other. Uh, he's just, to me, one of the most formidable teachers of the last uh, you know, 50 years or more. Uh, so here it is. The notion of ego, Ramdas Trumpa Rinpoche, in a panel at Naropa in 1974 on Ramdas Here and Now. Welcome to Open Secret, a series of radio and television discussions that are being filmed and recorded this summer in Boulder, Colorado at Naropa Institute. Naropa Institute was founded by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche to create a ground in which the Western academic and artistic and religious traditions could interact with those of the East. This evening, we are discussing the general topic of psychology East and West. We have with us an audience of over a thousand people who have been drawn primarily from the courses at Naropa Institute, which have been taught by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Ram Das. And before proceeding into the discussion itself, I would like to introduce the people with us. We have Jim Green, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, Ram Das, formerly Richard Alpert, and John Baker. <laughs> it is open secret, that's true. <laughs> these people are faculty members at Naropa Institute during this first summer session. Jim Green has taught philosophy at Columbia and Antioch and for the last five years has been doing psychotherapy in Berkeley. And he's teaching courses at Naropa on philosophy and psychology. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the president of Naropa Institute, is teaching a course on basic Buddhist meditation and on the Tibetan Buddhist path. Ram Das is teaching a course on the yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. John Baker, the vice president of Naropa Institute, is teaching courses with Reginald Ray on the tantric Mahasiddhas and saints and on Buddhism in India, and is in the process of writing a book on Buddhist psychology. Now, it seems to me that perhaps one way to start this would be in terms of uh, the notion of ego, that if we talk about the Western philosophical or psychological approach. Who are you? My name is Duncan Campbell, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the moderator. We're talking about ego.
Okay, now, now that I've remembered who I am, <laughs> I'd like to put the, the question to the general discussion as to the different ways in which the Western psychiatric tradition and the religious and psychological traditions of the East approach this notion of ego or personal identification and what the differences might be and what each of the two traditions might have to learn from each other. It would seem that on the members of the panel, perhaps Ramdas would be the best qualified to speak to that. <laughs> Especially since I have two names. <laughs> well, it's been interesting to uh, me over the past 12 years to remember that as a psychologist, uh, child development, a developmental psychologist. Uh, one of my major concerns was with theories of the developing ego of the individual and the uh, development of a, uh, an ego that has integrity and that is uh, effective in coping with the environment. Uh, working with people at Harvard such as Eric Erickson, um, uh, and with behaviorists concerned with converting Freud's ideas of the development of identification and the development of personality and personality structure, it seemed at that time as if the ego was a very real, solid, and uh, necessary uh, part of uh, the healthy functioning of an organism. And, um, when I started to work with psychedelics, it became, uh, I, I started to experience something that didn't fit into my theoretical structure of ego. And I began to think maybe we were going to go the other way now, that we were now going to unwind the ego or get out from under it. In uh, Hinduism, there is a thing called the ahamkara, which is the structure, a structure like the ego. And the game is of awakening is to transcend that structure, not to get rid of it because the ego is very functional, but to at least not be attached to it. Uh, seems like a statement for openers. Well, in the Buddhist tradition, I think the interesting thing is that they start from a concept of no self that somehow the whole project of involving oneself with the Buddhist meditation practice and with the Buddhist system of thought is to work from a premise that in fact the ego doesn't exist, that it's not even there. There's some concept of emptiness that is the ultimate reality if we can speak in those terms. And I wonder what the implications of that point of view are for dealing with uh, personality or neurosis in the life of various individuals. Well. As a practical matter, in my experience as a, as a therapist, uh, what seemed to happen is that I was involved in people, with people whose life dramas seemed to be more or less unsuccessful. And as a therapist, my task was to help them rewrite the script so that there was a better drama. And to some extent, we were successful and the drama was better, but uh, it was never quite satisfactory. There always seemed to be something quite wrong, ad infinitum, about those dramas. 
And it seems in some way that the problem was not that the drama was quite wrong, but that there was a drama. In some way, it was the energy in the drama which produced the difficulty. And when we worked somehow to make the drama less dramatic, it seemed that a great many problems simply, uh, simply dissolved. Uh, in doing um, therapy now over the past 10 years, I, uh, it's interesting that as the, the role of the therapist, the concept of what you do in relation to another person has changed a great deal. Because before it seemed very horizontal, you were substituting one ego structure for another, a more effective one. Now it seems to me you're still doing that but you're doing it from a place in yourself of not being attached to ego structures so that at the same moment you're putting one in place of another you're not investing it with a an emotional attachment that you would be if you thought you were a therapist in other words uh, when people say to me is therapy still okay within you know I say if Buddha were your therapist you get enlightened you know? but if your therapist thinks he's a therapist watch out yeah, it's that place We do seem to be engaged, though, in some process of slowing down the substitution of structures. That is, a great deal of the interest in the drama is in the kaleidoscopic variety of the structures, both for the therapist and for the therapy. And it seems that we uh, want to try to slow down that process of production of uh, structures a little bit. But uh, Rinpoche uh, said or wrote um, that you had to become somebody before you could become nobody. And, or I think you did, I don't want to put words into your mouth, <laughs> you can handle yourself. Uh, <laughs> and it seems to me that's what we, we end up doing in the, the psychotherapy domain is at this moment. I'm not sure that I agree entirely. It seems that uh, one needs uh, uh, not to have the sense of being nobody. But I'm not sure that one needs to have the sense of being somebody necessarily. But it seems there ought to be a way to avoid that particular uh, route. Uh, there ought to be a possibility of moving from feeling like a nobody, which is very I don't. I, I didn't mean that they would experience with, being a nobody, they'd just yeah. be nobody. Oh, I see, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that's always interested me is that it seems that a lot of people in America are familiar in some general sense with the notion of ego and certain psychological terminology that we get from Freud or Adler or Jung or whatever um, as vehicles to try to deal with our own personality. And the interesting thing about the Eastern traditions is the discovery that in the Eastern religious traditions they are talking about very much the same thing. In fact, in some of those traditions they even talk in terms of ego. And so the bridge is actually quite an easy one to make. It's not the matter of trying to absorb something so foreign and exotic that you can't relate with it at all. But in fact, in most cases, the attraction seems to be that they are speaking directly to your own struggle to kind of understand your own personal drama and how you can work with it. And in that light, it would seem that um, there might be some real differences between a Western psychology which seems to be premised on the notion of building up a strong ego capable of playing the game successfully. And an Eastern psychology premised on the notion that there is no ego, uh, which has the concomitant danger that you could just lapse into some sort of passivity or uh, a state where you know, your energy was completely inactive. And both of those seem to be cliches. 
And I thought maybe perhaps in the course of this conversation, we could try to clarify some of those popular notions as to what the interplay really was between these Western and Eastern approaches. I mean, for instance, Jim, do you actually think that the Eastern psychological approach has a danger of lapsing into passivity? I mean, that is the popular notion, and in your experience, have you found that in your own experience with Buddhism, for instance? Well, no, I know. There is the sense that somehow one's ego is going to be ripped off if one becomes involved with meditation practice or, or anything of that sort, and one is going to uh, lapse into a sort of helplessness. And that doesn't seem to be entirely a theoretical issue. It seems to be a, a practical issue that in the situation of meditation practice or in the situation in a therapeutic context in which some space is allowed to emerge within the conflict, within the drama, that uh, typically uh, some energy uh, appears which uh, before wasn't available. So that, in fact, uh, life begins to uh, enter where before rigid structures, the rigid structures of the drama and the roles prevented it from, uh, prevented it from uh, entering at all. And in some way the problem seems to arise out of creating theoretical polarities uh, like the ones you, uh, you describe, which have the function very well of staving off the actual experience. It seems to uh, reduce the anxiety about having one's ego ripped off and uh, being a helpless uh, body, something like that. So what do you mean having one's ego ripped off? Well, there's the sense that somehow Eastern religions or meditation practice are after one. They're after what one considers uh, uh, most valuable and that one has to sacrifice immediately everything one is as if uh, somehow everything one is were the enemy initially, so some sense of opposition between what is what one is and what one is required to be according to these uh, according to these religious teachings and that doesn't seem to be quite a sound uh, understanding of what we're doing i think one of the problems that uh, we have to the misunderstandings that come up is i think that uh, uh, speaking from a traditional point of view of buddhism that uh, um, there is big misunderstanding universally and uh, both Easterners and Westerners believe in ego and the ego is the uh, subject of uh, discussion and the ego is subject of uh, development and hope they only hope and those things be presented. But on the other hand, the Buddhist point of view is not particularly uh, that of the Eastern point of view or the Western point of view particularly, but somehow peculiarly Buddhistic, which doesn't belong to a particular category. Um, that Buddha, for instance, refused to identify himself with the national ego of India at the time. And he broke through systems, caste systems, all kinds of other systems, and he even broke through his own meditation master. That he found that there's something wrong there at the time. And uh, the only conclusion that he came up is that uh, that maybe uh, uh, there's a wrongness which is a traditional analysis of dukkha, suffering, 
and maybe such suffering does not belong to anybody at all, that maybe there is another possibility that even this doesn't exist, that you don't exist. And maybe that's the message of some message of uh, transcending from samsara to nirvana is uh, is entirely different category. So I think if you stick too much in terms of uh, debating between the East and the West theory, somehow we don't get the message across. Now, I'm not saying particularly Buddha was a smart person, and uh, I'm all for it particularly, but it's a different prospect that Buddha has presented has a different dimension altogether. Um, uh, kind of a, a humanistic person 2,500 years ago who disbelieved in humanism or egoed, whatever, which is, uh, I think, subject that we are discussing in terms of psychology. And therefore, teaching of the Buddha had become highly psychological oriented from that point onward, rather than behavior oriented as such, or culture oriented as such, that it's a non-cultural thing. It's a sort of revolutionary idea, which still <clears throat> could be more revolutionary as time goes on, uh, in my way of thinking, anyway. So I think there is a point there that the uh, all kinds of behavior patterns <clears throat> that we could present to make ego less or egohood, but at the same time we are doing something with it. And the, the real idea seems to be is that uh, um, to find out, dis discover, uh, is there anything at all? That's the, that's the question that nobody has really looked at. And we presume that there is something happening and it's as if that you have bought the cart and you never discuss about the horses. And that's what, what Buddha's getting at is that let us discuss what kind of horse we're going to have. Is the horse at all or not? Is it worth buying the cart? And that's that's kind of fundamental thing that we might inject in this particular situation. So which makes things more lively. <laughs> in the um, in the developmental part of um, uh, an individual's growth uh, from infancy onward, in the West it's assumed that a certain structure will develop just for functioning. Uh, that is, the sucking behavior will start and these sort of basic need systems will build a structure around them which will become psychological in nature and that that will be a necessity for survival and only after that can some other conditions occur now how does that fit in with what you've just said uh, uh, well i think this fits perfectly well um that there is uh, um There is a big misunderstanding out of nothingness. So we're dwelling on the misunderstanding as if, uh, as if anchor. And we built up the misunderstanding, whatever it is, you know, built life out of it. And it seems okay, functional, 
we might build a house on ice block or, you know, let's decorate nicely. And uh, let's, you know, disregard the ice block, but we still got to do that. Right. But then some point you begin to find in, in, in the spring or in the summer that, that uh, the spiritualities begin to question your foundation altogether. Right. But I think that's, that's the point is that uh, misunderstanding in this case is, is the pain and uncertainty possibilities of non-existent but still existing when child cry cry for non-existence there is this method that message happens constantly and the child suck nipple because child wanted to have some connection make sure that there's a relative reference that a child could exist it does exist which are the expressions of all kinds of panic which builds the society from that point of view mm. but on the other hand that doesn't necessarily mean that we should abandon everything and, and we should abandon as soon as the child is born and throw it out. Hmm. But we should build those misunderstandings to the level that misunderstandings becomes a source of understanding of some kind. Hmm. <laughs> well, it sounds like in, in, in a way that the, uh, the process that Buddha went through was starting out as a prince and someone who became disillusioned with we want to cast this in psychological terminology, the desire structure of being a prince or that kind of material existence. He then rebounded or reacted to the other pole of searching for some sort of meaning in a kind of ascetic structure, being for several years with the yogis. And then that itself proved dissatisfactory and it seemed like what he then discovered was that somehow the, the whole psychological pattern of what was carrying him from one pole to the other was really what was interesting to look at. And the only way he could look at that was by studying his own mind. Well, obviously, you know, I mean, uh, you can't call somebody a liar unless there is uh, something to prove that there is a truth exists. You know, it's as simple as that, that uh, the polarities is always there, that there is uh, the materialism is taking place in the uh, domestic level of, uh, of a Buddha's kingdom, palace, his parents and everything. And then we abandon that and he, he latched onto something else, which is still a uh, path to glory of glorifying ego or something, that he still went on. But then when he realized the, the uh, 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 what's the word, uh, uh, polarity, that he should look closely. What he's doing is actually what he's actually doing it or not. That then he begin to realize uh, uh, he wasn't doing anything at all, but he was just purely playing game. Uh, you know, pretend to be a saint, but actually that uh, he find himself in the trap trap in the sainthood. Whatever, you know, that's, that's, that's the crux of the matter seem to be. I mean, the, um, I think one of the greatest development that the Westerners, Western world has discovered is the law of relative, relativity. And I would say as soon as the law of relativity has given birth in this country or in the West world, um, that uh, it was, uh, Buddha mind is beginning to work. 
And before that, people have never thought of comparing. And people just presumed, you know, like we presumed ego. And, you know, the question doesn't rise that uh, everything seemed to be okay. But let's check the details. You know, that, that's become the problematic question. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I wanted to ask you uh, what, uh, in response, what one says to, uh, uh, what you say to someone who feels that the game or the series of games are what there is. And that if one gives up the games or even the sequence of games, one is left with uh, nothing which is worth surviving for. Which is what? Which is worth surviving for. Well, you see, well, I mean, that's precisely the point, you see. Uh, yes. We haven't explored another kind of life at all. We thought this is there, this is mm. it. You know, we haven't even stepped out of our front door. So there is something else, there may be something else, but let's, let us experience it. You know, that's right. intellectually very difficult to prove, because that we are inbuilt, we are inbuilt all kinds of concepts and ideas, the whole thing become very solid already, but uh, there is another version of the survival, other than trying to be, trying to survive with the basic necessity of ego. I mean, that's, that's to my mind, that is enlightenment. Is there's another version of the survival without trying to survive. Um, I mean, that's the big question, actually. That is that. <laughs> and in some way, it seems not at all to be a theoretical question. It's, it seems that so long as we rest in, a, in, a, in theory, we rest in a state of a hopeless internal conflict and, a, and a contradiction. And as soon as we take a first step outside that particular circle of conflict and contradiction, well, something happens or it doesn't, perhaps. Uh, but it seems as if the step needs to be taken in some way. Some exploration needs to take place if the issue is to be resolved for each person. But uh, what is the motivation for taking this kind of a step? We're having a panel discussion. <laughs> well, well, then I'll answer it. Why don't you say <laughs> Despair. <laughs> Despair. That was what, that's the model that Buddha demonstrates. Despair of the finiteness of whatever uh, structures he found himself in over and over again. They weren't paying up. But then how can you create a system which goes beyond the very notion of systems? Since that seems to be the problem. That the problem of ego is that it continues to You can't create it, but you can well, be it. You don't create it. Right, but it also, because people seem to be somewhat imperfect, it may be that we for some time hold a carrot in front of ourselves. Uh, it, that may be necessary, uh, particularly if we're aware that uh, the carrot doesn't quite exist. Even That's the though desire it's for enlightenment. You're yeah, about. the desire yeah. for enlightenment, right. Or for any one of a number of things connected with enlightenment. Yeah. Well, the desire yeah. for enlightenment itself seems to be somewhat a contradiction in terms, that the more you desire enlightenment, the less you can be enlightened, because you think there's something to get. But you find well, that out in the course of pursuing the desire for enlightenment. Right. It seems to be an imperfect world, and... and uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is an imperfect world in some ways, and it seems that, at times, actions are paradoxical. <laughs> 
What could you couldn't have it more perfect than that? You know, the thing destroys I itself. That. The thing <laughs> destroys itself. <laughs> but the the relativistic thing, um, you know, if the way psychological theory is built is built out of the the range of the person's experiences, the psychologist's theoretical psychologist's experiences, in terms of getting uh, deductive theories from which to deduce, and. Uh, until uh, we put into, infuse into Western psychology, people who are living by the, an alternative, uh, in an alternative domain, if you will, or however we want to say, the, a space which doesn't work from within ego structure, there's no possibility that we can apply that relativity to psychological theory. Because we can't speculate about the possibility of the Buddha mind, if you will, from outside of it, and have the theory worth a damn, as far as I can figure. You know? So it seems to me that many psychologists, I mean, I feel part of a large group of psychologists who are driven inside because of the dissatisfaction with behaviorism. Because you can't study it as object. Ultimately, you've got to be it. And until you be, you can feel that gap. You just can't jump that relative system. You can't jump out of your absolutistic uh, prison, if you will. In fact, I think that's the way you first got into Eastern religions. As I remember, the story you used to tell about being on the other side of the desk, where the student would come in, and you were the therapist, and he was the problem, and his game wasn't as successful, and your game was more successful, and your whole role as psychologist seemed to be simply to tell him how to play the game better. And then you began to think that uh, there was maybe something about this game itself that was to be questioned. And so off you went. <laughs> Here we are. Here you are. Because then I had to hide my neurosis. Now I can just uh, exhibit them. <laughs> well, I think we might discussed by the question of uh, the the notion of alternatives um, that might be an important point to discuss this point um, um, should person be trained disciplined in a certain way that there is no alternatives left or should a person to be inspired, there is lots of alternatives and you are free. I think that is the crux of the matter that uh, psychology is the West or whatever you like to call it. That's, uh, um, the alternative has a positive aspect and also had its negative aspect as well sometimes. And which is largely the Western therapy work is based on is a uh, um, Alternative, the therapy work is regarded as an alternative thing, uh, better than something else. And uh, also, various uh, practice of spiritual discipline that all the, most of the therapists would get into uh, are the discovery of a better world, which in itself is binding factor it is good at the same time because it gives you a new insight but on the other hand that will be misunderstandable yeah. there is that problem yeah. um, anybody has anything to say about that 
levels at which that um, first of all uh, the individual psychologist's fear of her or his own death puts a boundary on the game anyway and starts to make a finiteness to the possibilities that they will they're willing to consider it's the first part of it and then uh, the kind of lack of humility that exists in often exists in social science makes one conclude that one already knows all the possibilities or that one could know them intellectually that it seems to me that a lot of the boundaries are put on by the intellect without recognizing like intuitive uh, possibilities in the universe and and the intellect feels very finite to me in terms of what its possible ability to conceive of if you will uh, that's your domain, not mine. Uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. On the other hand, though, on the other hand, there is a certain, uh, uh, how to say, it, legitimacy and integrity to that life, which is a life of uh, drama and uh, uh, and game, which makes it very difficult to step outside of even, even. Uh, even momentarily. And that seems all right. I mean, in some sense, it seems a mistake to attack that head-on in some way, because that attacking head-on seems only to intensify, in any case, the, uh, the struggle. As you know, if you've talked with therapists who are very uh, uh, intellectual, it's as if some uh, softening of a situation has to take place. I don't think you do anything to anybody else anyway. Yeah, you don't attack right. me. You just do it to yourself. You do it like, undercutting your own uh, structures, your intellectual understanding of psychodynamics. Well, See, uh, you know. Excuse me. Um, I think there might be some problems with that, is that uh, um, that you are not helping somebody at all, anybody at all, but you are trying to learn very, very much mm. by using somebody else's examples that there is a kind of uh, um, very exclusive, kind of uh, uh, confused arahat kind of uh, problem that, you know, you are uh, like the example that uh, Duncan was talking about that you felt in the early days, uh, that uh, the students on the other side of the desk, you are on this side, and you found that it was very uh, ironically mm. strange, but then uh, you didn't uh, dealt with it, but you took off. Uh, uh, to fight another day, yeah, you will. Well, <laughs> I mean, let us discuss about that as well. And there is a problem of that uh, becoming uh, too self-centered, you know, that... Uh, or too compassionate to proceed with a game which is perpetuating illusion. Yeah, but then, in the meantime, the other person is suspended. You know, uh, until you did your research work, the other person is suspended and going through the same problem. Maybe 
behind another desk. Look, you go into a cave for a period of time, and yet you already knew about the need to alleviate suffering, and you're not going to say you can't justify spending times in retreats and caves. Uh, you were in the well, same predicament. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. That no. is disgust by that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a very narrow concept to think that you relieve suffering by staying on the firing line all the time. When I was in India, and it's sitting in the temple, I used to think, well, maybe I'm copping out because all these guys like Allen Ginsberg and all these boys are out fighting the fight, the good fight. Here I am sitting in a temple. You know, what am I doing? Why aren't I out there in Chicago at the riots and so on? And I began to think that the inner battle was really where the battle line was for all of us. It wasn't necessarily out there sitting in the desk in the therapy office. Do you mean that would cost a lot of lives? Hmm? Yeah. Cost a lot of lives. At least in one, the hopefully. <laughs> In the meantime, in the meantime, it would cost yeah. a lot of lives. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, Rinpoche, what would your particular advice to Ramdas have been? You know, a minute ago, um, you said that uh, the reason for giving up this world and entering a world which possibly, beyond our imagination, might not have anything worth living for in it, is despair. Um, and I've heard you, Rinpoche, speak about reaching the depths of despair. Uh, I have to become completely hopeless, which is even beyond despair. Um, but it seems that what you're talking about is the question of how one uh, generates that kind of despair that makes one willing to step out of ego into a world in which, uh, I mean, no one wants to die. Everyone's afraid of that. It must be a tremendous uh, impetus that propels us out of a world where, albeit we're suffering, but at least it's familiar and it has its petty pleasures and uh, not so petty pleasures, rather intense ecstasies and so forth. So, uh, you know, how does one go about generating that kind of impetus to make a person want to, or able to, step out of the world of ego? Well, uh, we haven't come to the conclusion yet, at this point, actually, that uh, should we examine that possibility, or should we just to try to develop and grow our ego? Uh, materialistically or spiritually. We haven't discussed the first point, so the second point seems to be obsolete in some sense. That's what I'm trying to get at, is uh, that uh, there are a lot of people listening to us here, as well as there will be viewers mm. in the rest of the country, and people are concerned about that. You know, mm. I think we should make very clear to them that um, maybe... That you don't walk possible, away from your desk. Is that what you're saying, that you don't walk away from your desk? Well, whatever, you know. <laughs> that wasn't a particular thing. Yeah, I don't think it would be That's bad if a lot of therapists walked away from their desks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, statistically, the recidivism rate is just about the same whether people go to therapists or not. So Western therapy isn't really doing that well. 
Yeah, but the issue seems to be a more general one of walking out of one life into another, and walking out of one life which one has behind the desk immediately into another which one has when one, one's, when one leaves the desk, which I'm sure wasn't your sense, and it, it doesn't seem to be that way. There's no real dropout, if you... Is that the, There's no real yeah. dropout. It yeah. seems that that's one of the meanings of a path, that really when one leaves the desk, one is in the same place, in a, uh, yeah, in a certain well, sense. Yeah, in the some sense that... Uh, um, we have a microphone in front of us, which is not a form of a desk, oh, and we right. have a platform. Absolutely, the game doesn't change, you can't get out of it no matter how hard you try. <laughs> it's just the illusion of change that just... <laughs> so, is there any point at all? <laughs> not at that level. It's okay, just spinning so wheels at that level, those what, dances. What level are we talking about? <laughs> oh, oh no! <laughs> Other than that level. <laughs> In the process of changing from the desk to the microphone to the pen to whatever the same vehicle is over and over again, the motivations, this is the same thing about working within desire structures, desire hierarchies. The, there is a process going on through that whole thing that is working on you in a different, quite a different way than is represented by the phenotypic behavior, by whether, I mean, you can stand in, in front, you are in front of a microphone at a very different motivational level than I am in front of this microphone, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> We're sitting on the same... I know, platform. it looks the same, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the microphones look the same, our sounds come out. You know? But I suspect it's different, I don't know. I, how am I going to get in there and find out? Well, your microphone is different than mine. Yes, mine is I noticed that. It's different than everybody's here. <laughs> Well, <laughs> back to square one. Right. <laughs> you didn't answer Jim's question. Jim asked you, what would you have done uh, sitting behind that desk? Well, not quite. A... I asked what advice he would give you. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me for putting that. Yeah, well, I do that every day. I have a desk and telephone. Yeah. Yeah. And the couch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the meaning of them all change. <laughs> yeah. You arrived at that from a different space. Um, um, I came to England by boat. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> what the other person meets in the office with you, with, in the office, <clears throat> is perhaps a different space well, than what they met well, with me 12 years ago. I do feel sometimes my desk shrinks, and when right. we have a conversation taking place, yeah. uh, if not an uh, optical illusion, 
which I think it is, but still, desk does shrink, mm -hmm. and it becomes just a very thin little desk, but still telephone rings, and mm. other things happen anyway. Mm. So I wonder. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they all seem the desk and the telephone and the microphone all seem much less intrusive than they uh, than they did within that other system that I was working in that's possible I think yeah and in fact my own identity as a therapist or whatever seems less intrusive and the idea that the person's a patient seems less intrusive or the idea there's anything to do seems less intrusive right it isn't really clear what the particular problem is actually there is a time gap perhaps but perhaps not but after all maybe uh, need to go up as young therapist up to, up to old therapist. It's good, it's good if that happens in time. Well, it's timely. Otherwise you die sooner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things should be seasonable, but it doesn't seem so urgent either, perhaps. That's a philosophical remark. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, maybe what we're talking about on a very simple level is that when you've got the psychiatrist behind the desk and you're on the other side of the desk and you're the one that's neurotic and he's the one that's sane, that already provides a certain polarity which is very difficult to get beyond. If you're the one that's neurotic, if you can't talk on an eye-level, friendly, communicative level with a therapist, it's only going to further reinforce your own feeling of being you're the one that's screwed up and you're the one that's neurotic. And that's what we're really talking about is how can we create a space or a model uh, which allows that kind of communication back and forth to take place. But I think that um, this, this uh, conversation <laughs> is, is uh, precisely the question of model. I mean, when a psychiatrist sits behind his desk, he he's a got a particular model. Yeah. And if you talk about enlightenment or being a guru, uh, that likewise is a particular model. And the question is, do you reject one model in favor of a better one? That's um, still horizontal. It's still horizontal. Yeah. Now, I think that's uh, a model. I think that's uh, what's being discussed here. Uh, the question of is uh, a spiritual model necessarily better than a secular one? Um, that of a guru better than um, the psychiatrist? And it seems like it's a, a tricky point. I don't think point the word is spiritual and secular. It just seems to me that the training I received as a Western psychologist. Uh, left me in a position where I was not open as a student, really, to keep doing the work on myself. It got me, I mean, there was a whole idea, once I had been given the PhD and had the credentials, I knew something and I was a knowledgeable person who, you know, then should function a certain way. And there was a certain fixed, fixity about the whole structure. And Breaking out of that back into the student role of surrendering that, that's what seems to me the healthy quality of uh, the growth of psychology in the West at this moment. So, you, so you, what you've just said then is you think that the student role is better than that of the teacher? I think yeah, the student role is better than that of the teacher, yeah. But then you have to have <clears throat> kind of... Uh, the issue came up the other day as well, the same thing, is that should, should you have a constant cultural revolution of some kind or other that when you become an advanced knowledgeable student and you know push back 
and uh, how far you can do that. Um, it seems in the past, according to the tradition, that a lot of the great teachers didn't have to go through self-criticism, having become great teachers, they stayed where they are. And uh, somehow there is uh, some gap in logic, and uh, we have to solve that problem. Did you say they didn't have to, or they didn't? <clears throat> they didn't. They didn't when, they, when they become guru and when there was inheritance of spiritual <coughs> yeah. initiation, Abhisheka, yeah. and they stood. Yeah. And the, their grandfathers honored that as well, or great-great-grandfathers as well. And did that maintain the living spirit of the Something is living rather than, yeah. you know, revolutionary or democracy of some kind. There's, mm -hmm. there's a problem with that. Maybe it's cultural, but uh, the tradition, old traditions came from uh, <clears throat> theocracy of some kind, and our new tradition is a democracy. Um, yeah. I don't know, there, there's a gap there. Yeah. We, should, we should look into that. Yeah. You know, that you can't constantly recommend people to be a student constantly. Well, uh, it doesn't, it's the, the ability to be, in a way, in both roles simultaneously in the sense of staying you once said to me it's okay I said to you is it all right to keep uh, going out and lecturing when I know how much uncooked you know with my model about who I thought I wasn't and you said as long as you remain a student yeah but I am in the role of a teacher but it's very much the role of a student and to me these come together very beautifully I don't find that as a contradiction that much well um Something very slippery there. <laughs> slippery? <laughs> you wanted to protect tradition and lineage, and I well, just... Well, you just did say, though, you know, that the student role was better than the teacher role, and there was something strange about that, because it would seem that the obvious statement would be that the student role and the teacher role are somehow the same. And I, I really wonder what you meant by that when you said the student role is better than the teacher You role. may end up being a teacher, but I think when you think you are a teacher, you aren't. I mean, it's less sure. than, that's what it really, I'm talking at a lower level, uh, I can't use the word level anymore. I suppose, I'm talking. The, I, suppose <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I suppose the problem comes up is uh, uh, when you become a guru who is also a student, and working with the people as student. But then, <clears throat> where does it go? Uh, what happened to the hierarchy? Uh, should Guru be also made into a student? Uh, you could teach him or her that lesson. So you see there's a I kind of hierarchical problem. All, the hierarchical problem only exists in the early stages of the process. After a while, the guru is everywhere. It's all the teaching. And the guru is giving you the teaching wherever you look. Well, who's the spokesman for that? Your heart. Uh, which is uh, one person's heart? Or? Each person's heart. Well, so then everybody, uh, we have no right to be here. That's true. Platform. <laughs> That's equally true. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, so how we, how we could hold the fort? <laughs> what happens in lineage? Well, I think we do this till everybody realizes this. <laughs> I mean, the game isn't to end up having everybody need somebody out there, or honor out there or then. You. you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's a self-destruct system, really. Mr. Moderator, I think you had to intervene sometime. Well, I think we ought to get down to brass tacks then as to what kind of system uh, would, in fact, do just what you're saying. You know, what kind of system is the best uh, designed to kind of short-circuit that process while honoring all of the, you know, neurotic elements in all of us? How do you create a series of practices, for instance, meditation practices or mantra practices or devotional practices of any kind that free a person to get beyond, you know, like his own trip about substituting one system for another? Maybe we ought to talk about uh, it in those terms, you know, like just in terms of a system. What kind of practices seems to be the most conducive to that? Well, you have a problem there, <clears throat> if I may begin is that uh, introducing a technique or particular practice uh, it's not group effort according to the spiritual hierarchy that we know of all the traditions, great traditions and religions Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism things be handed down <clears throat> there's an immediate problem that a student would, might say that what right you have to give us this thing that we have to sit on the ass for 10 hours mm. and what kind of authorities who gave you that authority the student gives you that authority the student gives well, you that when, authority by their despair no, but, no, but when, when the student uh, begins to revolt and begin to ask you a question. Good, yeah. And then uh, he takes away, you know. Takes away the authority. Authority. Right. So, so, so you you can't wave the Quran or the Bible, and this is my authority. Um, there is a very awkward moment there. There's a what? Awkward moment. An awkward moment. Yeah. Hopefully, yes. Well, yes. why hopefully? Well, maybe that's. That's it. that's the spark you talk about. That's the spark because it's your being that is the teacher. I mean, in the ultimate analysis, I, to you, your lineage is important. To me, the part of the teaching is the spark, or is the process of the being, or the connection to the being. Anything to say about that? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, just like the other day, we talked about uh, about eclecticism versus uh, a, a single tradition, and uh, and I think we 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 dealt with the issue of stages of sadhana or stages of development, and that there were stages when a person was had enough gyan or enough um, vidya, enough that kind of knowledge, to be able to honor a tradition as a functional entity to take you from here to here, or here to no, there, or whatever, how you want to say it. But the problem seems to be is that uh, <clears throat> the spokesman's role, that if there is a sacred and a very sane and a very solid message comes down, yeah. why do you have to <clears throat> uh, play the role of uh, 
student teacher flipping back and forth. Uh, you, um, don't, you don't have to play any role. Uh, uh, at the point where there is no role that you're particularly connected with, the whole issue is irrelevant at that point. Then you merely are the lineage. You are the statement of yeah, it, the living but, statement but, but, of it. Uh, Until then, the optimum strategy is that of a student. Um, I think there's a big gap somewhere. Hmm? There's a gap somewhere. Well, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that, you know, if you're in a certain role, like if you're behind the desk as the therapist, or if you're up in front of the microphone as the teacher, that there's something about that that you have to take responsibility for. You have to actually do that with a certain kind of confidence without providing that little escape hatch of, well, I'm just as neurotic as you are, and somehow that weakens the whole situation. Does it? It feels that well, way to me, uh, and I throw that out. Do you have anything to say, John? Well, it's like, Rinpoche, uh, you were talking, well, I think we shouldn't refer back. Um, let's see, try a, a sort of a pat statement. Um, if you take it as it's done in the Buddhist tradition, that uh, sort of the definition of ego is that it constantly wants to secure itself then a spiritual path becomes somewhat tricky uh, process. Uh -huh. <laughs> because um, we're talking about motivation. And motivation, uh, in this sense, could be uh, the tool of ego. I want to get enlightened. I want to st stop mm -hmm. suffering. I want to be wise. Um, then the problem comes that if the teachings, the essence of the teachings, are in fact the spark that cuts through ego, that steps out of ego's manipulation, that goes beyond the students or the practitioner's uh, desire to uh, see something, to experience something, to get someplace. That that spark has to be completely spontaneous. If you then co-opt it into the teaching and say, well, we're looking for this spark and uh, we're going to try and create it, then you've, made, you've put it into ego's employ once again. And I think it's something of the same situation um, with the role you take. In other words, sure, uh, where the, uh, the, the final position may be that I'm neither a teacher nor a student. But if you don't commit yourself to one stance or another until before you've reached that point, then you're trying to kind of, you keep trying to co-opt, you see, you're trying to be the goal before you get to it. And you can't have that spontaneity because you keep co-opting it into you. <clears throat> yes, it, it's as if there's an apparent progression. You start off as the therapist expert with a client, and then you realize you're neurotic too. So you remain the therapist, but you acknowledge that you're neurotic. Nevertheless, you remain in the role. You, uh, and you may even seek as a student some solution. Recognize that you're neurotic and find someone who will cure you. Nevertheless, you go on functioning as a therapist who, however, is decent, because I, he, I acknowledge that I'm neurotic. And that seems to be somehow an unsatisfactory situation, although it can go on for a very long time. At some point, probably, one has to see that the play of neuroses, which constitute the therapeutic situation, is unsound in itself. And it may be a therapeutic situation or any sort of teaching uh, situation. And at that point, one might see the possibility that the teaching situation is not a situation. 
That is, there's no particular situation one needs or institution or role in order for teaching or learning to take place, and even that there isn't a difference between teaching and learning. It seems that, that one can imagine that sort of progression taking place now. Yeah. I mean, it always seems, you know, in uh, there's this statement by Shanti Rakshita uh, where he says something about uh, the spark of wisdom uh, strikes like lightning and illumines the world. And um, I think what he's talking about is the complete, you know, spontaneity with which that has to strike, that it can't be something that we create by trying to be enlightened. I mean, uh, it's that constant, you know, like the story of Naropa uh, that we put in the front of the uh, catalog. Yeah, well, in that case, you can be the lineage, but you can't think you are teaching a tradition because that stifles the spark. Well, I think you, as long as you think that you are, you've got to. Um, I mean, you've got to play the game according to the rules that you've got because you can't keep trying to change the rules to make them according to what the books say they're supposed to be. In other words, it's like accepting where you are at whatever level, that's the place you got to accept and start with, wouldn't you say? I mean, I'm sure you would. Yeah, that part I would say, right. the first part. I didn't accept the whole statement. <laughs> yeah, that's sneaky. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like this the lineage that bugs you. Huh? He's very it's like, you know, shifty. <laughs> <laughs> you know I what agree. I'm trying to say. Mother and the flag and apple pie are good. Nice. <laughs> I think there is a... <clears throat> it was interesting that when I first um, went to the convocation exercises of the new Naropa Institute and listened to you gentlemen talking about lineage and tradition, I was somewhat taken aback because to me, I guess as a Westerner, lineage and tradition has always con be connected with deadness and the lack of spark, really. Right? Now to me, it is only conceivable that a lineage or a tradition can be transmitted through a living entity who is the spark itself. Right? In other words, I think that Naropa requires Trungpa Rinpoche Right. I don't think it, play, it, it would spark without that. It's like, well, you need the flint to get the game going, right? And the flint is not that he thinks he is a teacher, I don't I'm not describe him, but, but that he is the teacher, that he is the lineage, not that he thinks he's the lineage. And until one is that thing, it is most functional, it seems to me, to remain wide open all the time to all possibilities, which to me is what I've called a student role. But, even though I have to get up and teach every day. But you got to take a chance. I mean, being wide open can't mean sort of taking the safest position, like I'm a nobody. It's uh, as long as you think you're somebody, you've got to try and be somebody and see what that brings. That's the really you know, gutsy, uh, courageous thing to do. It's sticking your neck out. And then you can get it chopped off which would be... We are certainly doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes. Speaking of that, I think this is an ideal time for a break. I think so, yes. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. 
Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.